Welcome to Zealots of the Gate, a podcast of Comment Magazine. I'm Matthew Kamink. I'm Shadi Hamid. Together we research politics, religion, and the future of democracy at Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. We are writing a book together. This podcast represents an informal space where we can talk about how to live with deep difference. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to Zealots at the Gate. First of all, an important note, um, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. Uh, if you like what we do, please consider leaving us a review on your preferred podcast platform. And you can also join the conversation, ask us questions by using the hashtag ZealotsPod on Twitter, and we do check that regularly. Or feel free to email us at zealots at comment.org. So, you might know the drill, guys. Matt Kamink and I are good friends. That said, perhaps we shouldn't be. We have our differences. Matt's Christian. I'm Muslim. Matt's conservative. I'm liberal-ish. Matt's white. I'm apparently brown. No, I'm, I think I am. Um, Matt is a theologian, and I'm a political scientist. Matt's from the rural uh, northwest, I think somewhere around Seattle, but not in the uh, liberal part of it. I'm from a northeastern liberal enclave, um, Philadelphia, D.C., and so forth. So our identity markers would suggest that maybe we wouldn't get along, we wouldn't be good friends, but we are. There you go. That's our <laughs> intro. <laughs> so, Shadi, today we are discussing masculinity and muscularity in politics. And I think it's only right that you and I are both donning hoodie sweatshirts. Uh, That's right. Th this makes us strong and virile and, and whatnot. So we're talking about muscularity and masculinity. Um, and... Our dear listeners will find out more about this as, as we go on and why. Um, one of my favorite political philosophers and yours, I think, is William Connolly, who specifically writes a lot about these issues of pluralism and deep difference. And in his book on pluralism, he talks about um, something that happened to, happens to our bodies uh, when we experience deep difference. You know, when someone comes at us who is politically different, economically different, racially, religiously, whatever it is. But when we experience deep difference coming at us, uh, coming close to us uh, and moving quickly in a way that we might not be able to fully understand or interpret, Connolly says something happens to our bodies that they, they clench up, they, they tighten up. You know, we, we tighten our fists, our shoulders come up. Um, we might like clench our teeth. Um, and we, this difference causes us to respond often with a sort of fight or flight mentality. And, um, this is taking shape today. And what we're going to be talking about today is the way that this, um, fight mentality can arise in Islam, in Christianity, and even in more muscular forms of secular liberalism as well. And so we're going to be kind of diving into each one of these um, forms of muscular masculine responses to deep difference and uh, talking about the ways in which they show up in these different faith communities. And then just 
how do you and I think about it? How do we feel about this? Do we do we want politics to be more muscular? Uh, and how so and stuff like that. So I'm interested in jumping into this conversation. And we're going to start by um, listening to a rather surprising voice, a, a very problematic and, and difficult voice. Uh, in fact, a, a kickboxer and um, provocateur online who has a very troubled past. His name is Andrew Tate, and he's been in the news a little bit shatty here. Uh, for a number of reasons over the last few months, a very troubling figure, actually. Um, but I wonder if you might just sort of give us a little bit of background on who this Andrew Tate guy is and what on earth does he have to do with being muscular and masculine when it comes to these differences? Yeah, so Andrew Tate is a fascinating character, and probably most of you aren't familiar with him. Until recently, something happened over the Christmas holiday where he got in a big spat with Greta Thunberg, um, and it kind of went viral. We'll include a link to that Twitter exchange. But then Andrew Tate was arrested in Romania on sex trafficking charges. So that's kind of the recent background. Um, it's a little bit so there was um, a profile of Andrew Tate in The Economist the other day, because a lot of people are confused. And it's like, who is the misogynist Andrew Tate? And I read it this morning, and I was surprised and somewhat relieved that it didn't mention an important fact about him. Or maybe it's not that important. We can discuss that. But Andrew Tate also happened to convert to Islam a couple months ago. Um, but there wasn't a single mention of that in the profile. And if you look at some of the Twitter conversations about Andrew Tate, um, and, and more broadly online, very rarely does his supposed Muslimness, um, even come to light. And that's actually kind of reassuring for me as an American Muslim, that when Muslims do bad things, people don't immediately jump to the fact that they're part of my religion, you know, which is very different than post 9-11, where whenever a Muslim did something bad, even if it had nothing to do with the fact that they were a Muslim, it was like, oh boy, we're in trouble now. Um, and it's also <laughs> local, reminds- Local Muslim does X, local Muslim yeah. does Y, right? Exactly. And even recently, um, you know, Dave Chappelle, a lot of people don't know this about him, uh, obviously one of the most famous comedians in the world. He's also Muslim. And I like it that even when people are angry at him for being whatever, supposedly anti-trans and so forth, they don't mention he's Muslim. Great. Um, but I do think in the case of Andrew Tate, there's a lot of interesting things to kind of unpack here. Why did he convert to Islam. And just to kind of um, put a finer point on why he's relevant, I was looking at some stats, and um, this is actually incredible. His videos on YouTube have garnered a total of 11 billion views. And one survey, which is also a little bit crazy because I think there's only like 8 billion people. So clearly some people are watching them many times. <laughs> um, and, and also that there was a survey that he is the world's single most popular influencer among teenage boys and girls. He's a misogynist. 
he talks about how wives and women should be submissive and stay in the home and do these traditional things. Um, and that men have to basically be um, the patriarchs, all that sort of thing. Now, he converted to Islam. Um, are we going to show the clip of, the, of this? Yeah, yeah. You know, th this might be a good spot to show. So uh, we have a little clip here we want to share with you where um, Andrew is being asked, um, why did you convert to Islam? And his the particular reasoning behind it um, really brings us to our topic of being more muscular and masculine in public life and the ways in which he thinks Islam helps him do that. But also, um, he has a number of cuts at Christianity for being too weak, too feminine. And, um, well, anyways, let's just, let's roll the tape and we can hear from Andrew himself and then chat a little more about it. I wanted to ask you now, because this is the hot topic, especially in the Muslim community, about your conversion. Yeah. So tell us the story, like what happened exactly? Well, I think a lot of people who've been following me for a while understand that I've been mm. very respectful of Islam for a long time. Yeah, sure. I was born in a Christian country. I was raised as a Christian. And I've always been very respectful of Islam. And it's become more and more obvious to me and, and more and more pertinent that Islam is the last religion mm. on the planet. Mm. When I talk about Islam, because I'm new to it, yeah. I... I, I'm a little bit careful, right? Because I'm new to it. I'm certainly not a scholar. There's so much I need to learn. I know I'm on a learning journey. I'm not here to sit there and, and talk scripture. I, I don't know those things yet. I'm here to learn. Yeah. But and we're here at your assistance. Anything thank you, you brother. Thank you. Honestly. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's just for me, it feels like the last religion on earth. I feel like there's no other religion. People say to me, why did you convert? And I said, I don't really think, feel it as a conversion. I, it's almost like I knew God was real and now I've become religious. And they say, well, you were religious before. I was like, religious before how? Christian? Mm. What does Christian mean? Mm. Like, who's not a Christian? You go to Christian nations and everyone says they're a Christian. Look how they live their lives. Go yeah. into the average church. Is anyone actually fearful of God? Anybody? Mm -hmm. No. The girls are out on Saturday night drinking and mm. they turn up to church because their parents made them. Mm -hmm. Like, there's, there's no substance to the religion. And also... Islam very closely reflects my personal beliefs. I, through my personal life, I've yeah. learned that if you don't have standards and you're not a strong person who's prepared to defend his ideas, you'll be crushed. Yes. And we look at most religions in the world today, which are not prepared to defend their ideas. What's happened to them? They're just getting crushed. And yeah. now we have Christianity as an idea, which has basically said, well, we can't set any firm rules because everyone will just quit. So instead, let's make it so easy to be a Christian that nobody has to put any effort in yeah. and then accept everybody no matter what. And hopefully we can keep the church doors open. <laughs> that's not that's not yeah, God yeah. to me. You know, yeah, yeah. God to me is is strong. God to me is something to be feared. Yeah. God to me is something someone that people are afraid to mock. Yeah. God to me is someone that you have to go out of your way to prove something to. God to me has red lines yeah. like God to me re represents the Islamic faith. The Christian God to me, I don't see God. I can't explain. I don't see anything there. So yeah. to me, it was it was the only logical choice wow. in the end. Yeah. So strong words, uh, intense words. And we're going to share one more clip here, Shadi, uh, in which he gets even more aggressive uh, towards Christianity in his specific critique of Christianity for being soft and weak. And uh, once again, as we heard in this clip, this there's underlying worldview that you have to be strong or you will be crushed. And there's sort of a hidden third actor in here, I think, Shadi, where he's talking about being crushed. Being crushed by who? Being crushed by what? And that is, right, is a sort of liberal form of secularism, a, you know, a, 
a late capitalism, a late modernity, whatever you would call it. But there's this sense that the West is declining and in its decline, it's, it's crushing those who truly do believe in absolute truth. So there's sort of this third actor that we'll talk about. But first, let's, let's listen to this more aggressive clip, uh, specifically his critique of Christianity and what he, what he at least thinks he likes about Islam. Prepare yourselves. <laughs> I look at the world through a very realistic understanding of force. And I understand that if you're not prepared to defend something, it will be taken and destroyed. I understand that, like we said earlier, violence is the underpinning of all civilized societies. Even when I look at a big tree, I see violence. I understand that tree is the biggest because it destroyed all the other trees around it. If you're not prepared <laughs> to defend or fight, then you're going to be destroyed. So when I look at Christianity in its current form, I don't think that they can be right in terms of their interpretation of, interpretation of God, because if they are correct, God would give them the strength to defend themselves. And they don't. Christianity doesn't mean anything anymore. If the Christian interpretation of God was correct, then God would be giving them the strength to resist, but they don't resist anything. I don't believe Christians have preserved a single thing in modern time. I know in America, there's this hard-lying Christians who believe that they're trying hard, they are still failing on a daily basis. And in most of the world, especially in Europe, Christianity is absolutely not a joke. The thing that actually finally converted me was about three weeks ago. I'll send you the TikTok. It was the first drag queen Methodist preacher. Oh, jeez, man. Yeah, but, but this is the point. If you're, if, you, if you're tolerant of everything, yeah. then you stand for nothing. So once you say, I'm a Christian, but I tolerate everything under the name of tolerance, well, then you no longer have any beliefs. Mm -hmm. So if you have no beliefs then all of it is garbage. If you're the only way you can worship a God is if that God gives you instructions. And if those instructions are adhered to and respected by the followers. And also if the followers of this, of the, of the particular God, I'm not going to say names, stick up for and defend those beliefs and are prepared to be ridiculed or prepared to be stigmatized. And two, like I said er earlier, a bottom line of, of society's violence to fight, to defend those beliefs. If you have a belief system that nobody will fight to defend, then you don't have beliefs. Just like feminism. If nobody fights to defend it, it goes away. Like Christianity, if nobody stands up for the rules, it goes away. There is one religion on the planet today in which people stand up for the rules. They stick by the rules. They refuse to be mocked and they refuse to completely throw away their values and belief systems under the guise of tolerance because mm -hmm. they don't want to be tolerant of everything. They said, no, we're not tolerant of everything because when you're tolerant of everything, you have no morality. That's what we talked about earlier. Baseline morality means there's some things you're intolerant of because you're a moral person. So to be moral, you have to be intolerant to a degree. There's one religion on the planet and that's Islam. So if I'm going to, if I'm going to worship God and I'm going to worship God in a way which is true to my own personal beliefs, also what I understand about the world, what I understand about strength, what I understand about defending ideals, then there's only one religion on earth I can respect. I can't respect Christians anymore. They All right. Yeah. So he gets even more intense there and, uh, we, we cut off when he, he got it intensely explicit. Um, but Shadi, there is a lot in those statements. And uh, before I ask you how you feel about that, I'd love for you to kind of pull apart and help us understand what's happening here. What What is behind all of this? Uh, because it's not just Andrew Tate, but this is sort of a much larger discussion about the relationship between Islam and the secular West. So kind of yeah. pull apart for us what's going on here. Also, did I hear that correctly? I mean, this is the second or third time I've listened to it. Did he say that, like, what actually led him to finally convert was a drag queen? Maybe I misheard that, but it, it sounded like, anyway. Yeah. But I think that actually gets at something very important. He's talking about converting to a faith. 
And he doesn't mention anything about creed. He doesn't mention anything about theology. God is not central in this universe or what God wants or what God demands of his servants. There is nothing about the Prophet Muhammad and following his sayings and his deeds and the hadith. There, I mean, the list goes on. There's no mention of the Quran and the principles that are discussed in the Muslim yeah. holy book. Um, it's purely, it's purely what I would call a political conversion. In other words, this is someone who has preconceived political preferences and commitments and is trying to find a religion that aligns with his politics. He looked around at the available options. Christianity wasn't working. And then you only have so many other options, right? <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. um, you know, Judaism, hard to convert to. Um, you know, out of the three monotheistic faiths, you pretty much, I mean, Islam is the obvious alternative. So this to me is... It's fascinating because it's something, I don't want to say it's completely new. I think that if we look in the past, we can find maybe similar political, not to this extent, but maybe similar themes. But I think we're also noticing it in other faiths as well. And we can get to this a little bit later when we talk about Christianity, how a growing, a growing number of especially intellectually oriented um, uh you know, Protestants or agnostics and atheists uh, are becoming kind of hardline conservative Catholics, sometimes what's called Catholic integralists, because they see this form of Catholicism as being strong, defiant, vigorous. Also, those who have converted to some of the Eastern Orthodox um, iterations of Christianity orthodoxy is stronger it's more vigorous so on and so yeah, forth yeah in the cases, exactly that yeah i mean we can see that in the conflict over ukraine and the way in which vladimir putin and the russian orthodox church frames their their political and existential conflict which is it's a conflict with um a west that has been uh feminized and they talk a lot about transgender and sexuality and there's a desire to to, to stand up for men uh, as the sort of the masculine nature of the Russian Orthodox Church. And, and you know, as we talk about in our intro, I'm from Seattle um, and we and in Seattle and I'm from the Protestant tradition. And we have this in the Protestant tradition as well, sort of a growing in the ranks of uh, American Protestantism uh, that wants to uh, really raise up a, a masculine form of Christianity. And in Seattle, where I'm from, we had uh, a mega church Protestant pastor by the name of Mark Driscoll, who uh, made central to his ministry in that city, uh, the masculinity of the faith, and was very clear that he was focused on preaching to men and about being a man. And I think there's something really important that that Mark Driscoll and his his masculine emphasis on on faith, politics, and morality uh, emerged out of a context like Seattle. So you know, many of you, of course, Seattle is known for its coffee and its tech, uh, but uh, 
One of the main things Seattle is known for is it's it's godlessness. People don't really go to church. Uh, it's very it's a very progressive, uh, very secular uh, space, um, and of course a sort of sexual permissiveness and um, women's empowerment. All of these are very important cultural movements within the sort of Seattle milieu, and so being a Christian pastor amidst this secularity. Um, and this deep difference, right? Uh, Mark Driscoll and others are very aware that um, they are up against it culturally, that they are a minority. And when you experience that level of difference, there is this temptation to sort of drive this masculine, muscular form of religion and politics that we're going to fight. Like you can either lay down and go along with secular progressivism or you have to be very muscular in your fight against it. And, you know, so we see that example of uh, within Mark Driscoll's Protestant ministry, but we can see it in the Russian Orthodox um, tradition. And we can see it, as you mentioned, we can see it in the um, in the Catholic integralism. Uh, but back to Andrew Tate, he sees it in Islam, right? He sees Islam as a resource for him to be more muscular in the face of Western decline. And I think, you know, when we were talking the other day, you mentioned that there has been some conversation between Islam and folks like Andrew Peterson around sort of... No, Jordan. Oh, sorry, Andrew Peterson, Jordan <laughs> Peterson. So Andrew Peterson, just so you know, he's like a, he's like a celebrity in Christian circles. So, so our Christian listeners will know who Andrew Peterson, Jordan Peterson. So Jordan Peterson has, uh, you know, he's a number of Christians have engaged him because they like his, his focus on, on men. But could you share a little bit about like what's going on there for Jordan Peterson with, um, with Muslims? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, just like a, a funny story that comes to mind about Jordan Peterson. I was at a conference recently, and I was sitting on a din dinner table with a couple, um, you know, prominent American journalists. And I brought up Jordan Peterson. And somewhat to my surprise, two of them literally had no idea what I was talking about. This was just two months ago. They were like, wow. we don't know who Jordan Peterson is, nor have we ever heard of him. So I had to kind of give... A primer. And I think it's something similar with Andrew Tate. There is this whole parallel universe that people aren't fully aware of, and they probably should be because some very important developments are happening, happening there. Anyway, so Jordan Peterson, probably the most famous best-selling um, psychologist slash uh, philosopher type in the world today. I mean, his books have sold millions of copies, and that's that's not an exaggeration. Uh, you know, Jordan Peterson has been part of this kind of right-wing, manly approach. I don't want to put him in the same bucket as Andrew Tate. Um, obviously, um, Peterson has a more intellectually oriented approach and has not been accused of sexual trafficking and so yes. forth. <laughs> but just to say that Jordan Peterson has been able to speak effectively to millions of young men in America and more broadly across the globe by telling them basically to um, self-reliance, pull yourself up, 
clean your room, that sort of thing. <laughs> clean your room is actually one of his major pieces of advice, which apparently yeah. is um, helpful for people. Um, but Jordan Peterson, because he's become such a celebrity, there's become this sort of um, half joking, but also kind of serious desire to bring him closer to Islam. There's actually a whole subgenre of Muslim Jordan Peterson fanboys who think he's awesome. And there were actually a number of pretty popular YouTube conversations and debates between Jordan Peterson and various Muslim imams and intellectuals and pundits. And there was actually a hope that I've heard from, you know, a number of times that, you know, deep down, like maybe Jordan Peterson will come to the faith. Maybe the more we talk to him, he'll actually convert to Islam, which is somewhat amusing. Anyway, you know, I guess like these are proselytizing faiths. Yeah. Maybe, you know, it's kind of normal, I guess, to want to convert people to your own. Well, I think, you know, I mean, this, this, this desire for uh, a, a stronger public witness, um, you know, I, I'm going to have a number of criticisms um, in this discussion of, you know, being more muscular and masculine in public life. But I'd like to pause for a moment to affirm something that I think is really important about what's being said here. Um, so as, as our listeners will know, Abraham Kuyper is a public theologian that I really enjoy. And Shadi, you've given a number of lectures on your appreciation for Kuyper. And one of the things that, um, Kuyper is sort of well known as an advocate for religious freedom, diversity, and tolerance. However, he was no softy. He was not a pushover. He was not a relativistic um, pluralist. Um, he was very vigorous in his uh, public witness, and he had some hard edges. So when he argued for a diverse public square in which diverse faiths and ideologies could come and advocate for his, for their, you know, unique perspectives. Um, he was not soft and squishy about this. He was not affirming of those that he disagreed with. He actually wanted a vigorous public debate. He wanted the public square to be a noisy place, to be a raucous place to be a place where socialists would come with vigor, arguing for socialism. He wanted Catholics to come and bring their particular perspectives and to fight for it. Um, similarly, he wanted Protestants and liberals to do the same. So he, he wanted a noisy public square. Um, and ultimately, he thought that this would be good for democracy. And I myself find that uh, very compelling. So I like it. When, when Muslims come forward, uh, and mm. say, you know, I really feel like, um, we need, um, economic justice in this country for poor people, um, because God demands this. Uh, God demands economic justice. And one of the things within Islam is, uh, a real critique against, um, usury or, uh, you know, abusing the poor through charging them exorbitant interest, you know, and we can see that in, um, you know, payday loan systems and credit cards and things like that. And personally, I think that American democracy would be better off if Muslims would come forward and 
publicly argue against things like payday loans and say, you know, this is because we're Muslims. We, we, uh, we believe strongly in this and we believe, you know, God demands that the poor be treated justly and that, you know, interest is problematic. And you yourself, Shadi, have done this. You've actually written a little paper when you were, when you were younger about, you know, an Islamic view of economic justice. And so, while I have my, my real criticisms of this sort of desire of masculine, masculine, uh, fighting for your beliefs and not being so soft, uh, I do think it's really important in a democracy for people to be forthright, uh, about what they believe and to fight for it. Yeah. So for precisely this reason, I'm a little bit torn and I, and I want to lay this out, um, especially for, for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with intra-Muslim debates, but um, so sometimes there's a temptation to kind of engage with an apologetic approach. So part of me looks at Andrew Tate, and I don't want to talk too much publicly about the fact that he converted. Part of me wants to kind of offer up disclaimers, and we as American Muslims did this endlessly in the 2000s after 9-11. There was always this expectation that when there was a, a you know, a terrorist act committed by a Muslim, that, oh, are, did you condemn that? Or before you say anything publicly, you got to start with the condemnation disclaimer, which I think in retrospect was really not good because no one should have doubted that I, as an American Muslim, opposed terrorism. The fact that I had to go out of my way to say something that should have otherwise gone without saying. Yeah. And I think a lot of us played into that by engaging in this condemnation game. And this also happened, I think, too, with the rise of ISIS. Like, what do you do when you're, co when People who claim, people who claim to be or actually are part of your religion do evil things. I don't want to draw a moral equivalency between ISIS and Andrew Tate. That said, the charges against Andrew Tate are quite serious. I mean, sex trafficking is, is, you know, that's, that's very bad. Um, so I want to just, maybe that's my own disclaimer before I get to some of the substance, which is the people who talk about toughness, as you say, they do have a point. And let me talk about Muslims more broadly. Um, a lot of Muslims do like the fact that Islam is quote unquote tough, defiant, vigorous, that Islam has been able to effectively resist secularization, that Islam continues to play an outsized role in public life, despite efforts to cut it down and privatize it, it that hasn't happened. Yeah. Um, and I, well, I should also be, I should also kind of state my biases um, or my premises up front. I mean, I actually did write a book saying that Islam was exceptional in this regard. The book is actually called Islamic Exceptionalism where I make the argument that Islam is fundamentally different than other faiths and specifically Christianity because of its, um, because it does have a lot to say about public law. It does have a lot to say about politics and criminal, pun uh, criminal punishments and how to regulate public affairs sometimes in specific terms. I don't want to overstate that the vast majority of the Quran is not legal 
but there are obviously legal aspects to Islam that are quite prominent, and sometimes those are controversial. Um, and I think that even myself, I have to kind of, I can see why people would be proud that Islam has stood apart in this way. And not just Muslims feel that way. I should actually, you know, note, there's a growing number of conservative Christians who appreciate this about Islam. And I remember uh, a few years back, I had said or written something about a conversation I had with a friend where this friend made a reference to Islam being a quote-unquote badass religion. Then Rod Dreher, who's a well-known conservative Christian writer at the American Conservative, he wrote a blog post, which we can share in the show notes. I think it was something like Islam, colon, the last badass religion, question mark. And what was so interesting about this is he was actually celebrating the idea that Islam was a badass religion. And he was actually lamenting the fact that his fellow Christians were soft and weren't standing up for themselves. And he said, you know what? We Christians should be more like Muslims. We should be badass. We should fight against secularization. We shouldn't apologize for our beliefs. And another interesting example of this is, um, is So Rabamari, who, when we had him, uh, when we had a conversation with him uh, on, on, um, on the wisdom so of crowds. So is a, is a Roman Catholic integralist for our listeners. Yeah. 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 So uh, I had a, I had a podcast conversation with him. Um, and we can include that in the show notes as well. And he actually talked about how he had changed over time and how he's become more sympathetic to conservative iterations of Islam, including aspects of Sharia, because he sees the primary threat today as being secularism and liberalism. And if Christians can make common cause with these strong, defiant Muslims, all the better. So I mean, yeah, to so me, this I, is I gotta say, this has got to be somewhat confusing for you, Shadi, because I can imagine, you know, from the years 2000 to 2016, uh, opponents of Islam in America were largely evangelical conservative Christians, right? In my world of conservative Christianity, um, I spent a lot of time sort of defending Muslims against those who would say, you know, Muslims are the problem. Muslims are the problem in America. And now today you have these conservative Christian leaders uh, using words of respect, for Muslims, because Muslims are doing a better job of resisting secular liberalism than they are. So that has to be somewhat confusing yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a fascinating shift. And, you know, it, there is something nice about the fact that um, people don't care about us as much, at least in America, in terms of public debates, where in the early Trump years, we were kind of, um, you know, enemy number one with the Muslim ban, and Trump was talking about us a lot. Yeah. Like, thank the Lord that um, we've sort of disappeared and people, you know, sometimes I feel like people have forgotten about us, you know, which in some ways, like, you know, we, um, you know, it's nice, it's nice to have people talk about you, but it's also nice to not have people talk about you when it's negative. So, you know, there's that. So, Shadi, I, I want to push you now. I want to, I want to. Uh, I want to press you on something because it's something that been, that's been bothering me personally as well, which is the use of our faith for political ends 
turning turning these faiths that you and I hold sacred and dear, and they they mean a lot to us and to our families and to our way of life. And then to watch someone like Andrew Tate use Islam for his own, and, and I'm presuming here, he's using Islam for his own uh, political, moral, cultural agenda. Um, that happens within Christianity as well, of course. Um, there are Christian political leaders who use the Christian faith um, as a political weapon, uh, but it's pretty apparent that they haven't actually spent very much time actually reading Christian scripture or engaging in Christian spiritual practice. Um, of course, Donald Trump is example number one. You know, he would wave a Bible, uh, but it was quite apparent he had never actually really read it or wrestled with it. Um, but he was willing to use the Bible as a political weapon. So I guess what I'm, I want to press you on is how do you, how do you react as a Muslim? watching your faith get used like this with Andrew Tate, when it's clear he's not really taking the faith terribly seriously, but sort of using it as a weapon to to lash out at others. So, yeah, I mean, how, how does that work for you? It's a really good question because, well, there's two modes of me, Shadi. There's, there's me, the person who tries to keep some distance and analyze what other Muslims are doing from like a sociological and political science perspective. Without yeah, this really is, this making... is shaddy, shaddy, the social scientist sort of distantly observing, right? <laughs> exactly. And, but you know, Matt, and what, what I really like about our conversations is that you push me and you have pushed me over the last couple of years to move, to not always fall back on that mode. I don't, I don't want to say, I don't, I don't think it's a cop out, but sometimes I do feel like I'm deflecting and falling back on that analytical mode in part because my own personal feelings about some of these things are indeterminate and I'm still working through them. Um, yeah, but you're right. Like presumably as you know, a quote unquote Muslim thinker, although I, I have said in the past that I, I consider myself more um, an academic or a writer who happens to be a Muslim than a Muslim academic and writer who ha than a Muslim who who happens to be a writer, whatever, something like that. <laughs> yeah. But um, but through our conversations, um, I've had to contend with these issues more directly. Now, um, I I have a sense of what I have a sense of what I think. God considers morality to look like. And then when I see someone bragging about having 33 cars, that's actually how the whole tiff between Andrew Tate and Greta Thunberg on Twitter started. Andrew Tate was bragging about his 33 cars. Literally, that's apparently how many he, he, he has. And then I'm thinking to myself, like, I don't, there's no universe, there's no moral universe where I can imagine a God who sees that kind of prideful, behavior and avarice and arrogance and flaunting of crazy amounts of wealth and thinks like that is what I want of my servants. There's no modesty. There's no humility. There's no, and that, that to me is very intuitive and it doesn't even require being a, a Muslim. I think this is actually what, you know, 
the monotheistic faiths share is I think deep down, most of us have a natural inclination, what Muslims sometimes call the fitra, which is the innate disposition with which God created us. You know, if you, if you believe that God created human beings, then you must believe that he made us in a particular way and that we do have a nature. So we incline towards some things and don't incline towards others. Of course, there is evil, there is temptation, there is the devil. And in that sense, there's a struggle. But it may, And we will probably um, have an episode at some point where we talk about how the Islamic and Christian conceptions of sin and specifically original sin differs. So Muslims don't have this idea of original of original sin, um, in, in, at least original sin as Christians understand it. So um, anyway, this is all to say, and maybe I I'm doing precisely what I said I wouldn't, which is deflecting. <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah, I believe that there is a kind of normative Islam. I do have feelings about what is. Islamic and un-Islamic. So when I see someone like Andrew Tate bragging about how um, he wants, you know, about you know how he has his, you know, his women and they're under his, they're under his every um, every demand and whim, and that they have to be submissive, and he's associating that with a stereotypical view of Islam, which I very much disagree with, and we don't have to get into all that, but. Um, obviously, there is a sort of ultra-conservative, um, somewhat extreme view of Islam that sees it as needing to have control over women's lives, which I disagree with on a profound level. I don't even think it's the mainstream, the, it's it's not the mainstream view, whatever, so on and so forth. Um, but there is a part of me that's also uncomfortable speaking publicly and saying, this is the true Islam and this is the false Islam. And maybe this gets into the bigger conversation about pluralism and how, quote unquote, relativist we can or should be. I still am uncomfortable making, like, it's not my job to issue religious edicts. It's not my job to say what a true Muslim um, needs to do and should do. And maybe this is also just a reflection of the fact that I'm not a theologian by training. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Muslim political scientist and I would rather leave the fatwas to, to, um, I know. Okay. Let me, let me push you here on this. I, I'm not asking you to, to issue a fatwa against Andrew Tate. I'm just asking you to tell me, how do you feel when you watch someone use your faith and twist it like that? And, perpetuate stereotypes that have been difficult. Yeah, well, like, doesn't, well, I guess that, I, I, doesn't that sort of pull up a little bit of emotion for you? Well, I did say that I don't like it and that it bothers okay. me. <laughs> okay. No, but you're right. Like, why, why don't I get, like, why isn't there more of a fire? And we've talked yeah. about this before, but maybe just, can you say a little bit more about how this religious fire animates you as a sure. Christian? Cause that'll, yeah. that'll maybe help me think through sure. why I don't have as much of it. <laughs> So I'll, I'll, I'll give two examples. One is an example that I think is a pretty good analogy for what you are experiencing right now. And it's when I was young, you know, uh, people watched CNN. <laughs> when I was young, people watched CNN. And uh, 
One of the things that they would do is they would bring on Jerry Falwell, the old Jerry Falwell. I don't know if you remember this, but they yeah. bring on Jerry Falwell and he would be like the Christian cultural commentator um, that CNN would constantly bring forward as like the, the evangelical voice to represent us. And Jerry Falwell uh, would not uh, bring a particularly humble, generous, or creative Christian voice to the table. Um, he was more like a mallet, <laughs> like a moral hammer. Um, and he was the one who was representing me and my community um, in the media. And that was very frustrating for me because I wanted CNN to choose a public voice for evangelicalism that was generous, that was faithful, that was creative and interesting. And I felt like CNN was selecting Jerry Falwell because he was good TV. Yeah. Because of the, the hard edges that he brought. It was a bit like, uh, you know, going to a zoo to watch a wild animal. Like, let's, let's study these crazy evangelicals and, um, and we'll look at Jerry Falwell. And so that would pull up some emotion in me because I wanted evangelicals and their faith and their view of public life to be well represented on CNN. So I yep. felt strong emotion, you know, uh, about that. The second emotion is better seen with Donald Trump because I think that Jerry Falwell really did believe he truly was a believer. Um, he just publicly expressed himself differently than how I would. Donald Trump, I think, really did use the faith. He used the symbols mm. and the, the individuals and the sort of, uh, fears and longings of the evangelical faith. He used them as political tools, as political weapons. And he manipulated, uh, a church that I love and a tradition that I love. And so I would say that made me even more angry um, because I believe that the church is called to be a force for good and watching it get twisted like that was hard for me. So that's sort of how emotion works in those two things. Yeah. But in terms of political issues, you know, I mean, there are things that I care about, like um, the care for the poor, the care for God's creation. Um the care for the unborn in form in terms of abortion uh, in the past, you know, Christians cared a lot about the abolition of slavery. At least some of them did. And they brought, you know, Christian arguments into the public square that, you know, that black people are our brothers and, and that God cries out against injustice. And so they would bring religious fervor to different public policy issues um, and that's because our faith is public. And as you have, you know, argued many, many times, Islam is not simply a private spirituality. Is Islam is a public faith. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's my take. So go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> this raises a couple things that let's try to, like, we can try to unspool a little bit. The first thing, when you mentioned the example of Christians and the abolition of slavery, I do wonder about the causal sequencing. So it's possible that an individual feels intuitively without a lot of reasoning that slavery is morally abhorrent. 
then they take the next step and say that if they're Christians, by definition, a Christian God would not accept something that is morally abhorrent. Therefore, Christianity condemns slavery. This is just a thought. I, and, and I think it's worth, like, do we start, like, I already believe things, and then I can go to the Quran and find retroactive justifications for what I already feel in my heart and think in my mind. That's just a little side point. But I do want to ask you, because I struggle with this, and I think it relates to one of our previous episodes with the Christian theologian James Wood on the case for political combat, and he was making that case. There is a tension, I think, between having our views in a full-throated way in the public sphere. As you talked about earlier, a real democracy needs to have people who aren't afraid of expressing deep conviction. No one should feel that they have to suppress who they are in the public sphere. You and I feel very strongly about that. If you're a religious person, you shouldn't have to pretend to be secular or pretend to be liberal when you're making arguments in the public arena, right? But there is a concern that I have that, okay, people, people are being tough in their debating style. They're being combative. At some point, that is going to make pluralism a little bit more challenging. Um, or maybe it won't. Maybe that's just an assumption. But at least certain kinds of very strongly worded combative sorts of things are going to have a polarizing effect. And they're going to make us feel that we're in the right and other people are in the wrong. You see this sometimes on Twitter when people work themselves into a frenzy. Like maybe if you talk to them one-on-one, you know, in person as friends, they're calm and comfortable and whatever, but then it can build, it can build. And I wonder, I wonder how you, cause you do it very well and not, not just because you're my friend and not just because you're the co-host of the podcast. You are one of the relatively few people I can think of who has very strong, deeply felt commitments and convictions, some of which are controversial, but I never see you crossing that line where you get into a frenzy or where you start to lose control and start to kind of like project your anger or dissatisfaction on other individuals. So how, I mean, just for our listeners and how, how do you see that tension? Yeah. Well, goodness. Um, there's many ways to go here. I mean, my mentor, Richard Mao talks a lot about what he calls convicted civility, um, being a person of deep conviction you know, unapologetic about those convictions and being very clear about those convictions, but also being a person of deep civility. Um, the apostle Paul in the new Testament talks a lot about being a person of grace and a person of truth and that those things are not in tension with one another, but actually they are uh, embodied in the person of Jesus, that Jesus is a person who speaks uh, truth, 
And sometimes truth that makes us very uncomfortable and is very demanding, is very sort of clear, involving the kinds of red lines, right, that Andrew Tate is longing for, red lines. Um, but Jesus is also a, a person of profound grace and forgiveness and self-sacrifice and is willing to absorb the unfair blows of the other. Um, and so in the Apostle Paul, we get these two words, grace and truth, grace and truth, you know, conviction and civility, um, deep principles and generous pluralism. And, um, and I think, you know, ultimately, um, those two sides, uh, no human being could ever perfectly put them together. Uh, other than Jesus. Yeah. And so for the rest of my life, I will never be able to hold truth and grace perfectly together. Um, but Jesus has, and Jesus demonstrates that. And so, and, uh, and I think that a, a Christian approach to public life um, needs to hold both of those things. And so when I, when I hear these muscular Christians, uh, you know, arguing for a muscular form of Christian nationalism or, you know, we need to fight for uh, our Christian beliefs in public square. <clears throat> uh, my natural inclination is to criticize and critique them. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I do have to affirm that they are demanding Christian truth be spoken out loud and Christian beliefs be defended. And it seems to me that that truth is an important part of what Jesus was all about, uh, not just grace. And so I have to be thankful for, um, you know, my colleagues like, uh, James Wood and my, my colleagues and friends and brothers and sisters who are involved in, you know, these, these efforts for a, a stronger Christian voice, even though I, I, I think that sometimes they miss that other side, uh, uh, uh you know, of, of the, the grace yeah. and radical hospitality and a, and a willingness you know, a willingness to be mistreated in public life sometimes because you have to you have to absorb that. And Shadi, you experienced that on Twitter, right? You you have to absorb some <laughs> arrows and, and that's just kind of part of being yeah. a public citizen. So Yeah, exactly. I mean another challenge that I would just put to you is it's something that we do hear from various Christian commentators and also uh, some Muslim ones as well in the last 10 years or so. And I think James Wood made a reference to this when we had him on the podcast that there are normal rules of engagement when things are normal, but that we are now in an exceptional period. And here I'm referring to the U S yeah. context where because <clears throat> outward displays of religiosity and specifically Christian witness are demonized and constrained, marginalized, even sometimes through legal means, that the normal, quote-unquote, winsomeness, yeah. this more kind of radical, graceful approach, might be the ideal, but is it is no longer applicable to the particular circumstances that we find ourselves in. And that there's almost a kind of... Um, a political and perhaps even moral dispensation to be more aggressive because of the circumstances that in normal times you wouldn't use Donald Trump as a vessel to get 
Christian judges on the Supreme Court. Like, you wouldn't actually decide to look away from Trump's immorality. But because we are in exceptional times, we can make an allowance. Obviously, the dangers of that are obvious because how long does the exceptional time last? And once you start thinking that you live in exceptional times, it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But I'm curious how you would respond to that kind of pushback. Mm. Man, I didn't, I didn't prepare for this challenge. Uh, yeah, I think I would. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good one. I think that uh, what I would say is I agree with those who would argue that in the last 30 years, uh, American public life, uh, and with this I'm thinking, you know, our corporations, politicians, universities, newspapers, uh, American public life has become increasingly antagonistic towards the Christian faith. Um, compared to 1990, for example. Um, so I completely agree that an important shift has taken place in American public life and culture uh, with regards to its hospitality towards the Christian faith and the Christian voice in, in the public square. Um, uh, but the, the use of the language of sort of like emergency situation, um, I think I would want to reserve for situations like um, Nazi Germany, apartheid South Africa, uh, civil rights movement in America, you know, the abolition movement. Um, those That's when I start talking about emergency situation in which Christians need to start finding, you know, exceptional ways of speaking truth. Um, I just think public life has gotten a lot harder you know, for Christians who want to be, you know, speaking. Um, and uh, I think we should stop whining about it and, um, and take it as a challenge to um, strengthen our public witness, make it uh, more persuasive, more forthright, more convincing, um, and, and double down on, on being engaged in public and political debate in a way that is both truthful and gracious um, I don't think of this as an exceptional moment uh, in the way that I think apartheid South Africa, Nazi Germany, or, you know, the slave situation in America is. So, um, and, and furthermore, I just don't, just on a pragmatic level, I don't actually think that muscular Christianity is um, terribly effective in our, in cultural discussion. I don't think it really does persuade and I think of politics primarily in terms of persuasion rather than power. So back to Andrew Tate, right? He thinks of the world primarily as violent, right? And it's about force and it's about taking what's yours and defending what you think is sacred. Um, and that is, so his primary framework for thinking about political life is, is combat all the way down. And I, I don't, feel that way about American public life. I still think persuasion um, is, is really important. It's not just about, it's sort of a nihilistic, you know, grasp for yeah. power. As he somewhat amusingly said in the clip, even trees are violent. 
yeah. uh, which would, did make me chuckle. You know, as I, I, we would be remiss to not at least briefly mention the muscular form of liberalism. And I, I'd be curious right. how you would compare it to muscular Islam or muscular Christianity. Yeah. So let, let's pivot to this because I think this is really important because, you know, as you and I have talked about, um, secular liberalism functions in many ways like a quote unquote religion, I think. Um, and what has happened, particularly in Europe, um, is a discussion around a need for muscular liberalism. And I want to play a clip for our listeners from a uh, past prime minister from um, the UK, David Cameron, who gave this sort of somewhat infamous speech in uh, Munich to European leaders in which he was criticizing European multiculturalism and European uh, hospitality towards diverse um, cultures and religions that didn't quote unquote fit in or integrate with European society. Um, he was essentially saying, look, we have been too soft, um, too inviting to pluralistic difference. And what we need is a muscular liberalism, a muscular sec secularism. You know, these Muslim immigrants are coming in with a very strong identity, a very strong sense of purpose and meaning. And Europeans, we're, we've grown soft. We, we don't really believe in things anymore. And, uh, we're relativistic. And so we need to meet Muslim strength with liberal strength. We need uh, a sort of muscular liberalism. So let's, let's hop in here and, and just listen to just a clip from his Munich speech. Uh, and, and you can kind of hear the, the resonance with a sort of Christian desire to be muscular and a Muslim desire to be muscular. And here we can hear uh, a liberal desire to be muscular. What I'm about to say is drawn from the British experience, but I believe there are general lessons for us all. In the UK, some young men find it hard to identify with the traditional Islam practiced at home by their parents, whose customs can seem staid when, when transplanted to modern Western countries. But these young men also find it hard to identify with Britain too, because we've allowed the weakening of our collective identity. Under the doctrine of state multiculturalism, we've encouraged different cultures to live separate lives apart from each other and apart from the mainstream. We fail to provide a vision of society to which they feel they want to belong. We've even tolerated these segregated communities behaving in ways that run completely counter to our values. So when a white person holds objectionable views, racist views for instance, we rightly condemn them. But when equally unacceptable views or practices come from someone who isn't white, we've been too cautious, frankly, frankly even fearful, to stand up to them. The failure, for instance, of some to confront the horrors of forced marriage, the practice where some young girls are bullied and sometimes taken, when, taken abroad to marry someone who they don't, when they don't want to, is a case in point. This hands-off tolerance has only served to reinforce the sense that not enough is shared. And this all leaves some young Muslims feeling rootless. And the search for something to belong to and something to believe in can lead them to this extremist ideology. 
Now, for sure, they don't turn into terrorists overnight. But what we see, and what we see in so many European countries, is a process of radicalization. So, yeah. So the language of weakening, the language of strength um, is is shot through there. And in that particular speech, um, Cameron uses this phrase, a muscular liberalism. And this is um, echoed, actually, by Sarkozy at the same time. And Sarkozy gives a number of speeches on this need for French secularism to be become more strong and forthright in its in its cultural mission towards Muslim immigrants. And at this time, you have a lot of discussions in France about um, banning the headscarf uh, from public schools, uh, sort of efforts to use European strength to liberate Muslim women, and essentially saying that if we are weak, if we, if we are weak, we, we encourage violence and we cultivate separation. And so, um, we need to be more muscular in our, in our European secular beliefs. So Shadi, yeah, what are your, what are some of your thoughts or, or reflections on what, what you're hearing here from Cameron and of course from the muscular forms of liberalism that we see in France as well? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, I hadn't really remembered that David Cameron was a, I mean, it's been a while. I mean, it seems like really yeah. like a blast from the past. And it's also, I think, a very different moment in the political imagination. It feels very 2011 or uh -huh. pre-2011, post-9-11, that era of uh, American and, and British politics. And, you know, it is, it is a relief that we're no longer in that moment. Um, I think that, look, I understand where he's coming from. Uh, I do think there are intriguing echoes, uh, as you sort of alluded, um, to Andrew, to something that Jordan Andrew Tate Peterson was, or Andrew Tate, Andrew Tate yeah. Peterson. Maybe that kind of just conveys the idea that at some basic level, this desire to be tough and defiant and to stand up for one values and maybe to go overboard, because as we said, there's nothing wrong with that per se, but it can be taken to a point where it starts to push others out. And I think it's actually the French model of secularism that I would be more critical of. I actually don't think that Cameron's comments in that particular speech were the worst thing ever. I think he makes, um, you know, some valid points. I wish the entire focus wasn't just on the Muslim minority and singling them out. The way he kind of did that does make me nervous. I think that the French secular model isn't just saying that state multiculturalism is bad because France never really even entertained a multicultural approach. They've had this, this aggressive French style secularism for decades. The only debate is, is about whether to make it even more aggressive than it already is. And to keep on upping the ante and to keep on doubling down in a way that does single out Muslims because they are the ones who are, um, on average, more likely to be visibly religious and publicly religious. And that to me is anti-pluralist. If you're, if you're pushing people or pressuring them, including through the law, 
to suppress their religious conviction, that to me is a red line. And when I think about my own approach to American politics, that should be the red line here as well. If you are a conservative Christian, Muslim, or Jew, and the state is telling you that you can't fully be who you are, I mean, that that to me... That to me is a line crossed. So if a, if a Muslim woman, as we've talked about in previous episodes, can't wear the headscarf, which she, which she considers as a religious obligation between her and her God, and the state is telling you that you have to choose between that commitment to God and your supposed loyalty to the state, that puts people in an impossible bind. No one should have to make a decision like that. Yeah, and that's, that's probably a great a great opportunity here to turn to Latifa Abu Chakra, um, a, a brief response that she put together uh, responding to David Cameron and specifically pushing back against muscular liberalism and um, arguing for her own form of, of, of Muslim pluralism. She gave this particular speech to a, a group of teachers unions in uh, in the UK, pushing back against David Cameron and others who want a muscular liberalism. And here she is defending um, her participation in the public square as a Muslim woman with um, the headscarf itself. So let's listen to that. Thank you. I'm representing the Ealing Division in London, and I begin my address in the name of the Most High. Assalamu alaikum. When certain politicians and the media use the term muscular liberalism, that's just another word for racism and Islamophobia. This stance on Islam has led them into primary schools to ascertain why young girls wear the hijab, as it could be interpreted as a sexualization of these young girls. I say shame on Ofsted for victimizing young girls for choosing to wear religious articles of clothing. There is no such measure made for other religions or other articles of religious wear. This stance has other ramifications. It signals to the British public and emboldens groups such as EDL, BMP and other fascist and racist, uh, racist groups that women are oppressed by Islam, are made insubordinate to the men that supposedly forced them to wear it, and that it is, it is the job of the British state to liberate us. We reject this imperialistic saviour thinking. And I am here to state for all people who choose to practice their beliefs openly that we are not oppressed by our faith. Islam is not one homogenous block. There are Muslim women who do not wear the hijab, and that is their interpretation of their faith. The Quran beautifully states, La ikraha fiddin, which translates to, There is no compulsion in religion. My faith has given me the right to choose 1,400 years before the Universal Declaration of Human Rights told me I could. <laughs> A fun fact for you, conference. My dad didn't want me to wear the hijab. <laughs> I chose to. Those of faith, thank you. Those of faith should have the right to choose to wear their articles of faith. Sikhs wearing the turban, Jews wearing the kippah, or Christians wearing the crucifix. Practicing my right to freedom of expression through the hijab empowers me and other women like me to know that we are able to make decisions for ourselves. Through the hijab, women like me feel empowered to overcome the social expectations of sexualization that is relevant and has currently resulted in many cases of anxiety and worse. I can speak for myself and others like me. At school, I was able to focus more on the thoughts that were running through my mind than how good I looked to the world. 
The NUT has supported a woman's right to choose when it comes to pregnancy. I want conference to support my right to wear the hijab. How I choose to practice my faith is clearly displayed for all to see. This makes me the target of hate crime. The level of racist attacks on Muslim women is disproportionate to any other oppressed group in British society because we are an easy target. This decision by Ofsted has ramifications beyond the school gates and must be seen in the context of increased attacks on the Muslim community and perpetuates the outdated notion that Muslim women are victims. All right there, Preach. <laughs> Preach. Okay, that is, she is good. She is, that is, yep. Yeah. I like that. I mean, I don't, I mean, not to be like the analytical, critical person. I mean, I, I probably would differ with her on a couple of things, but in terms of speaking to a public audience in a very compelling way that speaks to a broad array, like, so if you are a liberal person, you can see something in that, in her comments where you're like, yes, the right to choose. Um, but she also talks about religious, religious obligation and how that's important to her, so on and so forth. Um, I don't know what you felt. I mean, I guess my guess is that you would maybe take slight issue with the fact that she even needs to justify the hijab using liberal language, you know, the right. I mean, we did talk about this before and it's always been something I think we've um we've wondered about but in some ways if that's what she believes if she believes if that's important to her the fact that she is choosing then great and i don't know take that where you will but yeah well i mean so there's there's many ways to sort of pick this thing apart i mean on our particular topic for the day which is being muscular i the the being muscular in public life, uh, there's a couple things I want to pull out. Um, one is she's criticizing muscular liberalism as a, as having a savior complex that we need to save you because you don't know what's good for you. And um, it seems to me that that's not unique to liberalism. Um, you know, Christian a sort of Christian muscularity in public life has that as well. We know what is good for the rest of the world because we have God's truth and we are here to save you. And so um, it seems to me that first and foremost, um, that is the downside, the dark side of, of any form of uh, muscular political ideology is this belief that <clears throat> you need to sit still while I save you. Um, you need to hold still while I liberate you from the things that you're wrong um, with or from. And the reason I wanted to finish with that quote was because Latifa herself is strong. Like she is, she, she is offering a very strong rebuttal. <clears throat> and, and I think she, <clears throat> she right there captures uh, in an important sense, what Abraham Kuyper is looking for, which is a noisy public square in which public consensus is being contested. And, um, and she's refusing to go along with this sort of muscular liberalism, which at that time, you know, from about 2004 to 2015, uh, throughout Europe, 
there was the shift to the right and this desire to meet Islam with strength. And it's still going on. It's still, yeah, that's true. It's still going on. Um, and so the public square needs, um, these subcultures that contest, um, the political norms that are being there. And so I'm grateful to her for that. Yeah. I think your point too, about the use of the word save, um, first of all, it's, it's, um, it's good rhetoric for her to use that kind of language in this context, but it does get to this, that even non-faiths are in a sense doing something that we normally associate with religions. Everyone is trying to save people they don't like or disagree with. And to kind of bracket liberalism or secular ideologies that are supposedly moderate and neutral and to say that they're not interested in saving people is just simply false. But what religion does that I I don't know liberalism can do, at least not quite in the same way, is that religions can distinguish between two different kinds of saving. You can save someone politically and you can try to save them religiously and spiritually. The latter doesn't have to have political implications. It doesn't have to require pressure or coercion because it's about the next life. Ultimately, the problem with trying to save people politically is that it requires action in the here and now. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that's such a good point. There's so much there. And I think, what we're seeing uh, in public school debates uh, here in America is exactly that kind of a conflict. Um, when you have, uh, you know, sort of a Christian agenda in America that wants to raise children in a Christian way, uh, conflicting with a secular progressive agenda that wants to raise children according to their understanding of flourishing. And so the battle over public school curriculum and what happens in uh, libraries is exactly that. Um, it is two different salvation narratives of both sides want to save the children and really um, pull this in and believe that they need to be strong and muscular in their effort to fight for the souls of their children. And so, you know, I know we need to wrap up this conversation here, but Shadi, just like final thoughts on this, this sort of this impetus to save our fellow citizens and to use the power of the state to do it uh, and to do it now imminently rather than leaving that off for uh, you know, sort of a respectful understanding that it's God's role to save people rather than ours. I'm, any, any final thoughts on that yeah, well, as we wrap up this discussion? It's a, yeah, yeah, it's such an important point to close on, and it's it's one of the reasons I love doing this podcast, because I do think this is a thread that runs through a lot of our conversations, and it's something that each of us as individuals can do. We can learn this skill, we can practice it, and it requires some kind of conscious decision to think differently about the savior complex, so to speak. It requires us to kind of take a moment when we, when we realize we're doing this to say, okay, 
there doesn't have to be an imminent solution in the here and now. I don't have to convert this person to my political faith. I don't need to make this Republican who insists on being Republican a Democrat. I can learn to let go and go on with my life and focus on what should ultimately matter more, uh, family, friends, community, and faith. But letting go is hard in the kind of environment that we find ourselves now. So you have to actually think about it in order to, to do it effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. On that note, right. lots more to talk about, man. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I want to I want to pull this out maybe in another episode of her specific defense of the headscarf. We, we need to talk yes, more about be good. Um, the reasons she used there because they're they're fascinating. And, you know, I do have some critiques of, of how she defended herself there. And I'd, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts there, too. Yeah, for sure. Um, friends, thank you so much for listening to Zealots at the Gate. If you like what you've heard um, we really ask that you check out our podcast, Intellectual Seedbed, which is Comment Magazine. It's filled with just amazing, amazing articles on faith and politics and culture. Um, you can find articles from myself in there. You can find some from Shaddy. Uh, they're just really great. Um, please do subscribe to the podcast, share it, review it. Um, give us five stars and then feel free to Give us a terrible review. Um, you can write us if you like. Um, you can write us an email if you have thoughts that you want to share. Um, our email address is zealots at comment.org. You can also follow Shaddy and I on Twitter uh, at Shaddy Hamid and at Matthew Kamink. Um, and please do use that, that uh, hashtag, zealots, uh, hashtag zealots pod. Um, our thanks as well to our sponsor, Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. Chad. Zealots at the Gate is hosted by Comment Magazine, produced by Ali Crummy, audience strategy by Matt Crummy, with editorial direction by Ann Snyder. I'm Shadi Hamid. And I'm Matthew Kamik. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Bye.